Well, it's been pretty fun for me this past week. I've been uh, getting texts, random occasions from people who uh, are starting this running thing. And they're like, I ran yesterday and I like, can hardly walk today. Like, this hurts a lot. Like, should it hurt? I'm like, yeah. This is really hard. Should it be this hard? Yeah. Yeah, it should. Right? So now all those folks, you know, that see me running with the kids up and down Noise and Ashland be like, yeah, this is difficult stuff, right? Yeah, this is not easy. So even a good athlete like Jake, right? He's like, oh, running, man, I don't know. This is so difficult. I'm like, come on, dude. I'm kidding. You're doing a great job. Anybody that can like start from scratch and say, I'm going to do a marathon in like four months, that's, that's impressive. So, um, and seriously, man, Steve has been doing an awesome job as our captain, so thank you to him. Um, a couple weeks ago, we left uh, the disciples um, in the book of Acts kind of early on. Um, they were hanging out in Jerusalem, kind of huddled up, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And Jesus had promised them that the Father would send them an advocate, uh, this, this Spirit of God that would fill them, that would give them the power um, everything they needed to be the witnesses to the end of the earth that Jesus had said they would be. And so on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, the Holy Spirit was poured out on about 120 uh, disciples, followers of Christ that were still in Jerusalem at that time. And it was this miraculous and supernatural event in the church's history the Bible described it, we looked at last week, as uh, of tongues of fire, of, of this mighty wind that was rushing through there. Um, they gave them the ability to speak the praises of God in multiple languages. And so we talked about how Jerusalem was swelled, the streets were filled with these pilgrims that had come for this Jewish celebration called the Feast of Weeks. So every once in a while in the Jewish calendar, um, all these folks from around the Roman Empire would descend on Jerusalem, and this was one of those times. And so people from every corner of the empire were hearing the word of God in their own tongue because of this miraculous thing called the Holy Spirit. So the day of Pentecost has also been um, called the birthday of the Christian church. So at that point, because once the Holy Spirit kind of fell upon them, this this crew of disciples was fundamentally changed. They were new creations in Christ. And in Acts chapter 2, we quickly see Peter stand up in front of a massive crowd, right? There was this crowd in the streets that saw the flames and heard the wind, and they were, you know, wondering what's going on. And they heard all these voices um, speaking their language. And so God had their attention, and Peter took advantage of that moment to stand up and to talk about the life and the ministry of Christ. And there was power and authority in his message. And I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 today. We're going to start in verse 37, page 993. <clears throat> and if you've never read Acts chapter 2, I would encourage you, it's kind of a long message, and we're not going to read it all uh, just to read what Peter had to share with them that day, he was pretty bold. He was, he was calling it like it was. He basically was saying, hey, guys, you know, this Messiah you all were waiting for thousands of years came, and you guys killed him, and, and his blood is on your hands. And so it was pretty, pretty shocking language that he used. But starting in verse 37, after he was done speaking, it said, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So his message was to repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So apart from that one miraculous filling of the Spirit, this is the first mention of the fact that if you come into relationship with Christ, the Holy Spirit will come and fill you and be inside of you. And it says that over 3,000 people were added to their number on the very first day. And now that all sounds exciting, right? But 3,000 people in one moment create some problems. So if you're a person in the crowd that, that sees that response, maybe somebody like Stacy Kearns, like a Zeus detail person, she's thinking logistics, right? What are we going to do with all these people? Because a lot of them didn't live in Jerusalem. A lot of them had traveled from, from distant places. And so the reality was is they were going to have to figure out, what do we do with these folks? People that knew very little about Jesus' teaching and what it meant to be a follower of Christ. So this was a tremendous responsibility now that the disciples have to, to kind of figure out. Um, how are we going to care for this group of folks? Um, how are we going to teach them and equip them enough so that when they do go back someday, like they can carry on this message and this new thing called Christianity in a place where they're probably going to be pretty alone, pretty persecuted. So that there was a responsibility there on that part. And then there was just these practical realities of where are we going to meet? What are we going to do with these folks when they run out of food and money? Very real reality as well. So today we're going to take a look at, at what a spirit-filled community looked like. This was the first of its kind. We're going to take a look at, at how did they handle some of these issues that arose uh, in order to provide and to care for people. So let's look at verse 42. Remember, this is Luke um, that is writing this. <clears throat> he says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So Luke writes that they were devoted, they were devoted to several things. And there may be several activities that we do in life, we all have, you know, our stuff that we go around and do, but very few things that we would probably say that we're really devoted to, because devotion requires a certain uh, amount of kind of intensity, right, and, and kind of a focus, you've got to focus your time, your energy, your resources. It might be a financial commitment. Um, so what are you devoted to? Because whatever we're devoted to is really going to shape the, the meaning of our lives. Is it work? Do, do work-related things kind of consume your mind in, in a way that takes precedence over some other things in your life? For many of us, it's our children and our children's activities, and so we scurry around after them to their sports or dance or scouts or whatever your kids are involved in, and inevitably those events sometimes come up against church, and we kind of have to, I guess, make a choice, but we also, it, it kind of like pushes on what are our priorities here, like what are we really devoted to? Some of us are devoted to relationships, 
Others are devoted to playing the comparison game. We look around at our peers and we kind of take stock of what they have and where they're going and can I get there and what do I have to do to, to make sure that I'm keeping up with everybody else. Other people might be devoted to people-pleasing, playing this unwinnable game where they're, they're trying to keep everyone around them happy, doing whatever they can to make sure that that happens at some level. The Greek term that Luke used here for devotion implies this, a steadfast and single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. What it meant for those 3,000 people that day in Jerusalem was that pretty much everything else in their life was going to have to be set aside so that they could come wholeheartedly and single-mindedly to their new faith commitment. And it said that this spirit-filled community was first of all devoted to the apostles' teaching. And I think it's really important for us to remember the context of what's going on at this time in history. This is just 50 days after the resurrection of Christ. And so there is no written account of what Jesus has done. There's no gospels, no New Testament. All they have are the eyewitness reports of the things that Jesus did and said. And so these new converts are literally just sitting at the apostles' feet, soaking up everything that they have to say, and then trying to remember the stories, the words, the phrases, the the images that they can to take back to wherever they're going about what Jesus had done. And so you can imagine a different kind of intensity, right? Because you you guys know that today I can talk from Scripture, but you can go home and do what? Look it up for yourselves again. Remind yourself. Imagine if you couldn't do that, and you're listening to really remember it, so that you can go back and tell it to somebody else. That's a different kind of of devotion to teaching. And I think it's important as followers, uh, people who claim to be followers of Christ, that we ask ourselves, are we truly devoted to the teachings of Jesus? Am I truly devoted to his teachings? So I think one of the biggest criticisms against the American church currently is that most Christians don't really know Scripture or theology very well at all, just to be honest. So as a result, we often don't have an informed and confident voice when it comes to having conversation um, in our culture about different topics that are, that are hot topics in our society. Instead of being grounded in the truth of the word of God, many of us just kind of go off our gut kind of our intuition about kind of whatever seems right or sounds good, but may or may not be truly biblical. The wisdom writers of Proverbs gave us a warning about trusting in our own instincts. In Proverbs 14, 12, they write this, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And basically I think what he's getting at is that most of the time our instincts are going to be wrong. Our natural gut is not usually wrapped around truth. And as a result of <clears throat> that lack of scriptural knowledge, we aren't very distinct in this world. We aren't very set apart as scripture would have us be because instead of the word of God informing us, we allow pop culture or whatever, the talking heads, that kind of become the driving seats in our minds. And the sad thing in all of this is that We have got more biblical resources at our fingertips than anybody else has ever had in the history of the world. (laughs) Yet we are still 
probably in the history of the world, some of the most biblically illiterate people that the Christian church has ever known. And, And maybe even the more sad thing about this, guys, is that most folks that I talk to really aren't that concerned about it. I talk to, to many of you, many other Christians that I cross paths with people, and, and sometimes we just talk about, hey, hey what, do you, what do you struggle with in your Christian faith? And, and a lot of people will say, I just, I don't know, I just don't read the Bible very much. It's really hard for me to get into Scripture. And, and, and then I'll talk to them six months, a year later, and guess what? Nothing's changed. It's the same problem. They, they'll, they'll tell me again, yeah, I just still struggle. I'm not really, I'm like, what are you going to do about it? Like, is it okay that like this thing that God gave us is supposed to guide and direct how we're supposed to live that you just kind of are, yeah, maybe I'll get around to it, you know, and you're just kind of, I don't know, nonchalant about really improving in this area, especially when you could, you know, get an app that'll tell you what to read today or devotionals that you can read at any time and it's discouraging. <laughs> so what would it look like for us to be devoted to the study of the word, and really the bigger question is to ask ourselves why. Why don't we care enough? Secondly, Luke said that they were devoted to fellowship. These, these were a group of people that desperately needed one another. Many Christians in our society, honestly, just kind of come to church when it's convenient, when it kind of works around the other things that they're devoted to. So I want to ask you guys a question, and I realize that I'm kind of preaching to the choir here this morning, but what is it that we're not valuing about our Sunday morning gathering? What is it that we're not valuing about our Sunday morning gathering and what's supposed to be happening here? Can you guys give me some of your input? What are we undervaluing about this time? I can't, I have no clue where that's coming from. There you go. That we don't have freedom, that we do have the freedom to be here. Yeah, yeah. We take for granted that a lot of people in the world can't meet publicly. We just, yeah, that's the way it's always been, so it just doesn't phase us a whole lot. We don't appreciate that very much. What else? Yeah. I think America's church is Yeah. And then I need that disconnect with you know the people. You know, if there's not authenticity, yeah. Why go to something? So as churches have gotten larger and larger and it's this new thing called the mega church, this is really a pretty recent thing in the history of the church. Um, there's this disconnect between it's just this performance up there by people that I don't know. I can slide into this dark uh you know, auditorium and slide out and nobody knows my name. I'm not really connected to anybody else. If I'm there, no big deal. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's definitely something that's happened for sure. Yeah, man. Yeah. And but if I know that my role is to come here and to worship God and to serve and that I'm wanted and I actually have a role in mm-hmm. this time. Yeah. Then that will give me a much more authentic view of why I'm here. Yeah. So 
Yeah, he talks about just the importance of playing a role in something and not just being an observer, right? So it'd be like going to play practice and, and being somebody that's just going to sit there at play practice day after day. But then all of a sudden, if you had a role in the play, then your, your attentiveness, your, your wholeheartedness, your devotion, your commitment to something would be completely different. So understanding that we have a role to play in God's story, we've been given gifts, we've got something to offer, we've got something to receive from others. I think that there's uh, some things I just jotted down. We don't put enough value on God's worthiness of our time. You know, people say, you know, they're not going to come to church, and, you know, that's fine. But I was just like, well, is God not worthy of your time? It's not about what you might get here today, what you might receive from me, whether my message was good, whether the songs were good or not. Regardless, is God worthy of your attention, your devotion, your praise for what he's done for you? I think there's another piece that we don't want people in our business. We don't want to have to share our brokenness, our stuff with others, and we also honestly don't want to carry the burdens of other people. We don't even, we don't want to know what's going on in their life because then we might be responsible (laughs) to help out, to pray, to serve, to love, to care, and we'd rather life just kind of be easy. I love what we have on our website about church, we say that we believe this about church. We say it's a community, a family where we know and are known, we love and are loved, we serve and are served, and we celebrate and are celebrated. And we can't achieve that picture of intimacy coming once or twice a month. We can't even receive that kind of intimacy or participate in that coming every week, but not serving, not being a part of a small group, not taking the time to meet somebody around you, stick your neck out a little bit relationally and say, hey, I'm Bob, who are you? (laughs) Hey, you know, you want to get together sometime and grab coffee and just get to know one another or showing up at Fuse to serve so that you can mix with other folks? We can't achieve that just popping in and popping out and not engaging It takes a single-minded focus to be devoted to fellowship, and it has to become a non-negotiable priority in our spiritual life where we create time, we create space, we give access to other people to the intimate details of our life. It's a choice, and a spirit-filled church is devoted to this kind of fellowship. It says that they were devoted to the breaking of bread, So communion immediately became a very important and expected and necessary ritual of the early church community. Even though it had just happened 50 days before Jesus' resurrection, um, they wanted to make sure, guys, we cannot forget what is the source of everything that we have. This grace, this forgiveness, this life we're living in was costly. It cost our Savior his life, and we need to remember that. It says that they were devoted to prayer to the praise and adoration of God, to thanksgiving and gratitude, to confession, to, to making requests of things that he would do in our life and in the world around us. Prayer is the oxygen of the Christian. And so are we devoted to those practices? Teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. Let's look at verse 43. <clears throat> It says, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So in a spirit-filled community of people, miraculous things, 
that inspire awe and wonder should be happening beyond what human effort can conjure up. There ought to be evidence that people's lives are being transformed. There ought to be evidence of physical and emotional healings that have taken place. Broken lives, broken relationships being restored and redeemed. And we ought to be growing in our capacity to marvel at the works of God. Say that again. We ought to be growing in our capacity to marvel at the works of God in the world and in our community. And sometimes we have to be really intentional about that. So this past Wednesday night, I have a, a group of guys that I get together with every other Wednesday. There's seven of us, and, and we uh, you know, just share our lives and kind of help one another be more like Christ. And this past week, I said, hey, guys, tonight, how about we just share um, things in our life that we just want to celebrate? What's going on that we can all just kind of celebrate with one another? And it was so rich, you know, as we shared um, things in our marriage that are improving, or relationships that are being restored. We talked a lot about our kids. All of us have, you know, kind of college age, high school age kids that are, many of whom are serving at, at camps and, and different places this summer or being a part of the internship here. We shared about um, stuff going on in the church that, that we were excited about, the, 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 the interns starting this past week, stuff going on in our neighborhood, the, the fostering and adopting that's been going on. And sometimes we get to, for, to, to stop and be in awe of all that God is doing in our midst. But a spirit-filled community takes time to remember, to give thanks to God for his amazing grace and goodness. Let's look at verse 44. It says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So practically speaking, as I talked about earlier, this new Christian movement um, provided some serious challenges very quickly. Right? Many of these pilgrims who had traveled maybe hundreds and hundreds of miles to be in Jerusalem decided to stay when their lives were kind of wrecked by the gospel. So these folks are going to, as I said, quickly run out of money, food, lodging, right? And, and they were going to need help and support. So the local community of Christ followers, those that received this message that lived in and around Jerusalem... They were going to have to step up in some pretty radically generous ways to provide. So what happened to those local Christians is that quite rapidly, Jesus became more important to them than their possessions. Jesus became more important to them than their possessions. It says that they sold property, possessions to give to anyone in need anyone. Guys, we have to remember that these are folks that were potentially from places that they've never been, other countries, other languages, other cultures. They were strangers. A lot of us aren't that excited about selling something and giving financially to people that we know and care about, let alone a complete stranger to us. 
I want you to flip over to chapter 4 real quick. In verse 32, just a little later in the story, the same kind of stuff is happening. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So how do you think that worked? You know, you're sitting there with thousands of people. You're trying to figure these things out. My guess is that this was not something that they were necessarily used to doing. My guess was that the Holy Spirit was speaking to some of those folks and saying, hey, you know that land that you've got? You know that extra camel that you've got? Whatever the situation might be, do you, do you really need that? Could some people benefit from you maybe selling that so that we can provide for these folks in need here? And, and these folks had to obey the Spirit's voice when it challenged them and asked them to do some very difficult things, again, with strangers, people they didn't know. And I love the spirit of it as it says they went and they laid it at the apostles' feet. And basically what that tells me is, guys, I trust you all to listen to the Lord and how you're going to distribute this money. I'm not making any kind of demands on what happens with my money, quote unquote, okay? Why do you think the Lord was adding to their number daily? And why does he sometimes not? What was present there, you think, that fostered that growth? Or what's absent at times when God kind of withholds his blessing? What do you guys think? Do you have something? Okay. The attraction of a community of love and fellowship. So when God sees people whose hearts are turned towards him, he, he wants more people to be blessed by that, right? Yeah. What else? Yeah, Jake. Say that again. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Anytime the Spirit's power is present, I mean, growth is really the only option. I mean, people are going to be attracted to that, for sure. Yeah, Brittany. Yeah, that's great. There's not a lot that we can, he can do with that. 
Yeah. Yeah, she just said that uh, part of it may have been just the proximity to the, to the events that had just happened of Jesus' death and resurrection were so tangible and so real. I mean, you, could, you knew people that saw it happen with their own eyes, and there was power in that. And it, sometimes the farther we get away from that, the, the less the impact of it or the less the emotion that happens as, as a result of it. But guys, it's pretty evident from, from looking over these passages that, that this was not a drop-in on the Sundays that work for you. Do your part and then go your separate ways type of community. Like it can be in our individualistic Western society. This was radical interdependence. Doing life together with extreme sacrifice for the good of the whole. And the leadership in the Roman Empire would soon take notice of these early Christian communities. There was a, a letter written by a guy named Aristides to one of the Caesars, Hadrian, I've got that up there. I'll read it for you if you can't read that small print. Explaining the Christian religion. He says, But Christians show kindness to those near them, and whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They do good to their enemies. If one of them have bondsmen and bondswomen or children, basically slaves, through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They do not worship strange gods. They go their way. And they go their way in, in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their own homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And listen to this. And if there is any among them that is poor and needy and they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life. And verily, this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them. That's a Roman's impression of the early church. This was faith in action. As we talked about in James a couple weeks ago, it's not just believing in Jesus, but it's doing the things that he did. Like, like James said, you can't say to a brother who does not have clothes or is hungry, hey, you know, good luck with that. <laughs> but do nothing to help them, to feed them, to clothe them. And the world took notice and said that there was something divine in the midst of them. Is that true of us? If people experienced wellspring in our community, would they say that is true as well? I want to put a challenge out for us, okay? I'm wrapping it up here. I'm coming home, all right? As I was writing this past week, I really felt the Spirit speaking this to me, so I'm going to share it with you today and see what you, uh, you know, what you need to do with that. Um, so we've been in communications quite a bit recently with... Um, a, a local church and mission about six blocks from here, um, about 20th and Messani. If you've been to Food for Kids, it's just kind of right across the street. There's a church there called Word of Faith, and then um, it's an old Catholic church, that huge tall steeple right down there, um, and then about three other buildings that were part of kind of a convent area many years ago, and they own all of those buildings together. So it's a pastor and his wife, Robert Warren, is the pastor. He's a band teacher at Carden Park, because he can't afford to be a full-time pastor. Um, his wife runs an, uh, a non-for-profit called Mid-City Excellence, 
They provide after-school um, mentoring, um, tutoring. They do uh, praise and worship uh, dance teams. They do drum teams. They drive buses around to pick these kids up. They uh, more and more as... Um, you know, violence, suicide, all those things have picked up in, in definitely the mid-city area, but other parts of town, they do a lot more trauma, um, suicide prevention. Um, and these guys have been at it for about 16, 17 years. I've, I've known Robert and Kim for quite a while, really respect everything that they do. And, and if anybody would ask me what group of people or what organization is getting after it in Midtown, it's them. I mean, they are on the front lines. They are... N- deep into the, the pain and the hurt of vulnerable people in our community. In a couple of months, they, they actually just kind of shot up some flares <laughs> to, to local churches and just kind of said, hey, we're, we're kind of struggling, um, not only struggling financially, but just with volunteers and, and really just more so struggling with the overwhelming need of people needing their services, not just the kids, but the adults, the parents who are struggling. And so our board has gotten together with them in recent weeks, and we've made some financial commitments to them um, to help them to kind of get their buildings um, usable for the programs that they want to run and things, things like that. But I really want to challenge us, you guys, here in the next two weeks. Two weeks from today is going to be kind of our last message in this series. And I want to challenge you guys in the next two weeks to, to take a look around your house And to think about what you have that you don't really need. And would you be willing to to consider selling some stuff? Put it on Craigslist, have a garage sale, whatever. And just get rid of your surplus so that other people can really just thrive. Other people who are, are desperate for help. And that we can accumulate those resources and bless them in a in a substantial way. Um, Remember what Luke said. He said, And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. And the Holy Spirit continues to convict me as the pastor of this church that we cannot sit here in our plenty while brothers and sisters of ours who are six blocks away who are doing unbelievable stuff are, are struggling. And so we, we've got to step up, um, and I feel like that's what spirit-filled communities do for other people. And guys, I don't have any doubt that y'all aren't going to do it. I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying these things today to a group of people who aren't generous. I know you are. And so I have unbelievable faith that you guys are going to take these things to heart and really pray and say to God, God, what would you have us do? Is there stuff that we can get rid of or just be generous with our money so that we can be a blessing to other folks who who really just need some wind in their sails. God, more than anything, those folks are just discouraged and they're just tired. And, and I just want to be a church that will say, guys, we're going we're gonna to put some wind in your sails because you, we need you in the game. You can't go under uh, through exhaustion of doing this work. So let's pray. We'll pray for those guys this morning. Pray for our own hearts that we would be devoted to the things that Spirit asks us to be devoted to. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of these folks that were, yes, pretty close to uh, the cross and the resurrection. Um, But man, when the Spirit prompted them to be generous and to to give, um, to serve, to love, man, they did it. They obeyed. And uh, I'm just challenged by their example today, God. 
And Lord, we have to take this message and, and not only look at it um, individually, we have to ask ourselves, you know, how am I doing at being devoted to certain things in my own personal walk with you? How am I doing in being devoted to fellowship even within these walls here at Wellspring? What choices am I making about my priorities and what, what I'm, my devotion is, is to in my life? But then we also have to look out at the greater context around us and say, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ, first of all, in St. Joe, you know, Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, right here where you are. There are brothers and sisters that are struggling, that are trying to do great things in this city, that have favor and influence in places and with people we probably never will, and they need our help. And so, God, I pray that you would challenge our hearts to dig deeper, to be more generous, and to do it in a radical way, in a way that it maybe hurts a little bit, in a way that maybe we have to say no to some things we usually like to do in order to to come alongside some folks that can really bless them in some powerful ways. We ask that you would speak to us, and we ask that we would listen and obey, and um, God, that there would just be great joy in that, that we can share with others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.